This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw on the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related. And hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. Today we take a look at the return of one of our favorite franchises, Max is back and he's madder than ever in Mad Max Fury Road. We look at the film and the films that inspired it. Hey, Steven. Hey, <laughs> Good to be here again with you to talk post-apocalyptic movies and in particular Mad Max, which has got to be the king of post-apocalyptic movies. That's kind of where it caught on. It wasn't the first movie uh, of that sort, but it was certainly the, the series that kind of kicked off a worldwide, low-budget, <laughs> post-apocalyptic revolution. What did people just figure, well, if we've got a desert, then we've got the perfect setting for something, you know, after the after the bomb? I think so. you got a desert or uh, the eastern shore, perhaps, <laughs> or we'll get to that later, But or, you know, some abandoned buildings and uh, a factory. There's always a factory yeah, somewhere sure. along the lines. Uh, you know, you've got the makings of a, of a good uh, doomsday uh, scenario. So, yeah. uh, but uh, nothing really matches... The originals, and uh, of course, we're talking about these because there's a brand new insta- installment in the uh, the Mad Max saga, Fury Road, which is uh, just uh, burned its way into theater screens. But yeah, uh, and into my brain. Yeah, pretty much. I definitely yeah. need to go see it again at some point before uh, before it ends its run. But uh, it's uh, it's certainly a worthy follow up uh, to to what's come before, and in many ways, a superior follow up to many of the films in the series. Yeah, I would say that's true. I I kind of. I came out of this film. I guess we should start talking about the new film that's uh, now in cinemas as people might be still out there deciding whether or not they're going to go see this Are thing. Are you crazy people? <laughs> I mean, still the, deciding. The, the, the critical uh, passion for this thing is is kind of unprecedented, you know, and I can understand it. Like the, the experience I, I had going to see the film was a visceral experience that it kind of it, it, it got past. Usually, I, I was saying earlier that usually when I l- really love a film, it's because the foundation of the thing is based on this incredible script. There's something in the storytelling, in the way the words come, and the and the drama of the acting and the and the the character stuff that that really grabbed me. Whereas with this film. It's not the script. I think it's the directing. It's the directing and the editing and the sound and all those elements of, the, of cinema that it's like it's it's a more pure cinema experience. If I if I can if I can use such a nerdy film nerdy expression. Yeah, I'm wondering how long was this script because I, I think the film is maybe a shade over two hours. Um, but you know, the, there would just be cars driving and cars <laughs> yes. running into one another and cars blowing up, and then oh, and then there's some dialogue. It's 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 really it's really stripped to the bone in terms of uh, what's being said on this film, and yet somehow in the midst of all this mayhem, we still managed to hit the character beats. We still managed to have arcs of sorts uh, throughout the course of the film, and uh, there's a lot going on while the. Everything is just moving forward at, at at blinding pace. It's you know we get a little bit of a breather at the apogee of the film. It's not even really the middle point, but the, it kind of reaches an apogee and then the pendulum swings back the other way. Yeah, there's no other way to describe it. But um, 
but it you know clearly uh, it's rare that a film story is defined by its act. Usually, action is stuff that happens in between other bits of story. But here, it's it it is the story. Yeah, it's true. a it's a pure action movie. And and for those uh, who don't know this the the gist of the franchise, which is the original three films started in 79 with Mad Max. There was a sequel in 81 and then a final third film or until last week, a final third film uh, in 85. Uh, Post-apocalyptic warrior Max, who started as a cop who kind of got disillusioned with with feeling so helpless. Uh, Terrible things happened to him. And he goes out on the road and he starts taking the war to the gangs and the bad people and trying to survive. Basically a story of a survivor in, a, in terrible circumstances. And, and that's where we, we meet the new Max. This is originally played by Mel Gibson. Now uh, Tom Hardy, who I think is well chosen. He's got that sort of tortured quality to him in his in his in his in his look and in his just this general tone of of this guy and he, he's played a lot of tortured characters already in his career uh yeah he's, it, but he's different kind of max than than gibson was he's he's a um you know you actually might believe that he could be a danger to himself and to others <laughs> oh for sure <laughs> like he, he has genuine genuinely some some serious issues of ground guilt and uh you know and mental health problems and i i really felt that from his character in a, in a in a big way but but one of the things that I really like about this franchise in general, and, and I think I could speak to, to, and this this is important to keep in mind for anyone who hasn't seen the th- first three films, is that continuity is a loose a loose thing in these films. <laughs> you know, there's there's yes. certainly some threads of the character that continues from film to film, but it's kind of expressionistic. You, you don't have to have seen the other movies, any oh, yeah. of the other Very movies, key. to to appreciate any individual entry. Yeah, it's not like uh, the Star Wars prequels where you need to know everything about Empire trade embargoes in order to follow mm-hmm. the, the, the handful of lightsaber <laughs> scenes. Uh, in, in this case, yeah, you don't need to see one through three in order to enjoy this. Um, there's, a, there's a bit of a reprise at the start, I think. But, but basically, this is a guy whose who's chain has kind of snapped. And uh, so, as you mentioned, his, his, his main instinct is survival. But at the same time, as you remember, like in the first movie, he is a cop. He's a policeman. So he's got that sense of honor, sense of duty. And that's always lurking underneath the surface. Uh, and, and, and somehow, he, you know, if, if he can make the survival thing work with uh, his other instincts, and, then great. And that's, you know, that's sort of been the, the, the link throughout the three films. Um, you know, he's never completely, um, you know, out, out in left field. There's always something that humanizes him. Yes, that's but right. It, uh, and that's, you know, that always comes to the surface by the end of the film here he knows this helping uh i'm getting ahead of myself i guess but helping the the, the women that he meets along the way uh that's gonna you know helping them is gonna help him and so it's you know he is out for himself but at the same time that that conscience comes to uh comes to comes to bear over the course of the film yeah yeah and that's that human humanity is important and i certainly uh but what's so great about these films especially this new one is that it's not hinged upon him. He is almost no. a supporting character in his own movie. That this is a story about how he there is there is to give you a little uh, background. There's there there's a feudal lord of sorts named Morton Joe, 
played by a guy named Hugh Keysburn, who who was Toe Cutter, which is the villain of the first film. They brought him back, put Amazing. him in a bunch of makeup, and of course he's unrecognizable, but it's the same actor as, as yeah. they used back in 79. So oh, I he, know those eyes anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's he's the villain of the piece, and uh, he runs this this awful, awful place in the desert, and uh, he takes care of, of a certain amount of people, uh, but of course he he uh, he is he's a bad man. He has he has sex slaves and he has all sorts of things going. Controls all the water and uh, and he and he has a sort of a a group of of soldiers working for him, the war boys. And uh, and and he, one of his lieutenants is is Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron. And he gives her a mission. She's traveling across a desert and uh, she changes her mind. It turns out she's she's spiriting away uh, five five young women, uh, two of whom I guess are pregnant. Uh, by Mr. Mr. Joe, and uh, and they want freedom from the kind of oppression that they've been living under, uh, and this is where Max gets tied into this at first as a as a uh, a living hood ornament as part of a pursuit <laughs> vehicle, and then he he's in a, you know he's a resourceful guy. He managed to get free of that, and then becomes a uh, becomes part of the uh, the pursued, and uh, yeah, this whole sequence of events with the giant machines on wheels, these uh, crazy cars, their the, the design elements are just spectacular. And the various groups of hunter and hunted uh, is the breadth and length of the film. I, I love you mentioned the the hood ornament uh, that Max gets turned into. Basically, I mean, he when we first meet him at the film, he's he's the most feral we've ever seen him. He's he's his hair has grown out. He's bearded. He's just this kind of rambling shaggy man roaming the wasteland. And uh, you know, it, you know, in what what remains of the the car that we've grown to know and love over the course of the films. And uh, he gets captured and turned into basically a human gas tank for one of the war boys who's who's been injured and uh, requires a transfusion. Yeah, or he has some kind of illness. It's not really clear. Yeah, they, they're all kind of pale. I mean, they're obviously painted, but they're also kind of emaciated. And, and some sort of like have, radiation illness yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. So he, he's basically, I love that he's been reduced to essentially a human car part. <laughs> yeah. In this case, the gas tank supplying yeah. blood to this particular war boy who chains him to the front of the car and takes him on this pursuit of a Furiosa in the, in the tanker that she's stolen, which was supposed to be a tanker full of water that was going to be traded for a tanker full of gas at Gasoline Town, of course, mm-hmm. where else? And, uh, you know, but just the, the fact that they reduce him to the level of being a human gas tank. Yeah. Um, you know, so he's got a claw, he's got a long way to claw himself back up from uh, over, over the course of the film. But it, yeah, they really take him to the lowest of, of the lows this time around. And, and Hardy is well known for being this very, powerful actor but he seems to choose roles based on stuff being stuck in his face <laughs> like he he was bane in in the third uh, of Christopher Nolan's Batman movies and uh, the Dark Knight Rises and he had he wore a thing the whole through the whole movie and through half of this one he's got some kind of obstruction in his face he has to try to find a way to pull off uh, and that it makes for th- this is something that also I think the director George Miller is really good at is is putting moments of almost slapstick humor oh, definitely in yeah. in the midst of this to lighten the mood because otherwise, this is pretty dark material. Yeah, and but there's, there's there is a fair bit of humor scattered throughout, and that's the case in all of the films, I think. And uh, and also, there's lots of if, if I would I do recommend watching the first three. 
if you uh, before seeing it if you can you don't have to but there are lots of shout outs back to the previous installments in the series scattered throughout fury road and if you see them and you've seen the the old ones recently you'll you'll get a kick out of spotting that that kind of uh, those kind of references yeah absolutely absolutely and i think that uh that but it, but uh, yeah as i said it doesn't it isn't necessary this is its self-contained oh, yeah. wonderful uh be- beautiful looking i mean it's it's uh, given that it's a depiction of a of a horrible wasteland of uh, misery and pain it's 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 uh, something it's it's a strange word to use but the tr- the film is truly beautiful the production design is out of this world there's stuff in this film that i don't know that i've ever actually seen in cinema before and ideas brought to fruition not the least of which is uh, a marshall stacks on wheels with <laughs> oh, a with a demonic uh, guitar player flame shooting out of his guitar playing riffs along with the hunt yeah uh, with the war drums on the in, on in, the back on of the, the back of, of it. this massive amp van or whatever yeah. That is. <laughs> yeah it's crazy and i every time it showed up uh and and you could hear it off in the distance uh, you know creating suspense when they were when they were coming closer this group of uh of killers and uh and slaves and soldiers uh and it was yeah really really wonderful idea it made me smile every time i heard it oh yeah bris- brilliant visuals throughout that's the other thing there's so much imagination put into the visual design of the cars and of you know the the landscapes that we see the, at one point the film's it it just turns to black and white and you don't even notice <laughs> part of part of the journey. And it, I don't know if it's shot that way or the, it must be treated in post-production, but it's because it's just that they're caked with like gray dust. Basically everything gets caked in this dust while they're out in this certain part of the desert. And all of a sudden it basically looks like a black and white movie. And I don't think it's, sh- I don't think it is black and white, mm. but because everyone's, and it just has this weird silvery look. It's and I just kind of sat there going, oh, "Wow, this is amazing!" And, yeah, you know. And then the crows come back from the from the earlier films and everything. So it's just, <laughs> I don't know. It's just uh, sheer movie heaven. Yeah. You know, for me, you know, in scenes like that, just, absolutely. And it's there's a giddiness to it that uh, that enthusiasm. And I gotta give uh, George Miller huge credit. This is a guy. He made the first three films. I think the third one he co-directed. He uh, he also directed um, Witches of Eastwick and Lorenzo's Oil. So he kind of went to Hollywood after the Mad Max movies and did a different kinds of movies altogether. He produced the first Babe movie, the pig, the talking pig movie. Yeah. He di- produced and directed Babe, Pig in the City, the much underrated sequel, which is a terrific <laughs> movie, by the way. <laughs> Very dark and weird. But Very dark and weird. Not but completely unexpected. Yeah. And then the two animated Happy Feet movie about the penguins, which are kind of uh, environmentalist films, environmentalist kid movies uh and uh yeah really wonderful but couldn't be more different and then at age 70 he produces this film which which truly takes his original core idea and then shoots it into the 21st century in a way that that i don't know that i would have expected would be possible yeah i wonder how long they were trying to get this off the ground i I get the feeling that he's probably been wanting to follow up mad max probably waiting for for mel to be able to do it and finally kind of just like well who needs mel that's exactly that's exactly what happened i I gather that it was ready to go in 2001 and the funding the financing was all in place but then 9-11 happened and they were going to shoot in africa at the time and and it just collapsed because they couldn't get insurance at the time so that the project sort of went dead for a while they tried to revive it and they tried to shoot it 
in Broken Hill, Australia, where the original right, had been shot. And uh, this was a few years later, and still, I think, with Mel on board. But uh, they had these huge rains in Australia, and all the desert bloomed. So, <laughs> so it no longer looked post-apocalyptic, and they had to scrap it again. So this is, I think, the third try to get this film done in the last 15 years. And they finally got it done. They shot it in Namibia, in Western Africa. And, uh, and you know, Tom Hardy, I've been reading about the production of this for the last three years, just little bits and pieces coming through. But... Um, yeah, and I, I think they've done such an amazing job. And, and uh, you know, I think the secret weapon of the film, for those who think, oh, it's just another mindless action picture, is uh, is, is some fairly sneaky and uh, well-thought-out political stuff. Uh, not only about environmentalism, which is a big part of this story as well, but, but just uh, the fact that, that Charlie's Throne is the hero of the thing. You know, it's like and and uh, and I think I think Max being this supporting character and her being the character that has the biggest, the longest arc, I think oh, is, is sure. really important. And she is fantastic. I mean, mm-hmm. There's no two, two ways about it. And she and she does a lot of what she does without a whole lot of dialogue. I mean, she's a little more verbose than Max is over the course of the film. But but um, it's you know, the, it's all told in terms of physicality. Um, you know, she's missing in chung or one of her forearms basically so has to you know that gives an extra layer of having to cope with the the fake hand and 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 that just gives her a great really great look on top of everything else especially with the the black paint across her face and but but uh you know she, she she's she has this uh strength that just makes you want to stay away from her and <laughs> like, like she's definitely something you don't want to mess with you know especially yeah. i love to see there's a scene in the cab where they're just guns coming from every every you know part of the, the truck and it's just it's just bananas like yeah she's clearly uh a good uh a good gal scout in terms of being prepared and uh you know so there's, there's an intelligence and a strength and a fury to her that uh you know, are just as important as Max is. Yeah, right. yeah, I agree. And I, without giving too much away, we learn her heritage, uh, having come from a place where women are warriors, and the the last remaining warriors in from that place are women still fighting the good fight uh, for for their rights. And uh, it's yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff. There are there are faces and characters in this film doing things that you wouldn't have seen i don't think in a in a in a similar action movie not for not not, not that i can remember yeah it, it's uh well there's there are people in this film that are over 40 imagine that you know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah again that's something that comes sort of when the pendulum starts to swing back the other way so I yes don't, i don't want to say too much about uh, no that's what a good idea there i mean it was you know i, I watching the movie it's funny if you've seen the trailer of course the trailer has this amazing sort of chase sequence and, and a few other scenes but most of it's just centered around this one and I'm going oh that's got to be the big climax of the film nope that was the intro (laughs) that's the beginning of the film so once once we see all the stuff that's been in the trailer I'm kind of going I have no idea what where this thing is going. I have no idea what's going to happen next and that's such a great feeling because it's so rare these days yeah absolutely given, given the way trailers tend to oversell and over explain uh, the movies that are coming up yeah yeah i would really say if anyone is having kind of doubts about this film and and has a taste for action films thoughtful well-made action films uh and uh i think well maybe i'll wait for you know a smaller screen experience really yeah. don't don't wait 
go. Go and see it now. <laughs> yeah, you, this has to be seen on a big screen. There's yeah. no two ways about it. And, and even the 3D experience is something I, I've, I've gone on record as saying I'm not that much of a fan. Uh, in this case, I didn't mind it at all. I felt like in some ways it brought an extra layer to the experience, to that visceral thing. And, and for the rest of the time, I hardly even noticed it, which is so weird to have those goggles on my face, mm. those hated headache-inducing goggles and, <laughs> and not be bothered by them. Well, yeah, I think we talked about 3D before. My ancient brain just after after about 10 or 15 minutes just refuses to process it anymore. So <laughs> it just stops being 3D because it's, you know, it's tricking your brain and thinking there's depth where there isn't. And, uh, yeah, my brain's just like, screw this. I'm I'm going home and just, <laughs> and just kind of checks out. So it's, um, you know, and, and I think I read that George Miller did not really want to do it in 3D, but I guess, you know, when, when they started production, Warner said, no, we, sh- we should make this in 3D. So he said, well, if we're going to do it, we're going to make it really 3D. <laughs> so there are moments in the film where they kind of play up the process in a way that maybe they, that the most 3D films today don't do or they're afraid to do or think is tacky. But there are a few moments in this film where, yeah, it's 3D, all right. Yeah, <laughs> you know. yeah, yeah, and uh, and I would say that that 3D combined with a lot of CGI, the way yeah. it was in say uh, Avengers: Age of Ultron, makes for a very video gamey kind of look. Whereas here, because so many of the stunts are practical, yeah. they did them on set. I mean, sure, there's CGI. They removed a lot of the safety harnesses for the performers. They they're the backgrounds, and there's there's definite post production color stuff being done here. Oh, for sure. But um, but the fact that so much of it was practical effects done stunts done on set means that it's just that much more jaw-dropping when you see it see it in that way i i uh, i'm a big fan of of them of people actually you know jumping out of cars in real life at high speed <laughs> <laughs> yeah i keep thinking i wonder if i could survive that <laughs> yeah. of course is no or my leg probably won't but yeah it's uh, it's always fun to imagine mm-hmm <laughs> So Mad Max, when it came out in 1979, it was very much a part of the Ozploitation uh, movement. And that's not something I know a whole lot about. I've seen a few of those films, but maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Steve. Well, yeah, there there was uh, kind of like Canada had the same sort of thing in, in the 70s. There were tax breaks for film production. And so a lot of not very good films went into production, a lot of genre films. And some of them are being rediscovered. Um, and we'll probably talk about some of those uh, that uh, fit into this theme a bit later on. But um, anything uh, where you could just have a lot of cars kind of blowing up and <laughs> and uh, women taking their tops off and you know anything that would that was cheap and and uh, repeatable, you know, that was kind of like the theme of of what happened uh, in the Australian film industry in the 1970s. Um, but a lot of it is actually very very good. Obviously, Mad Max is kind of the pinnacle of that era and the, the breakout international hit. But there's a ton of action films and uh, and sex comedies and horror movies that are all worth watching. And and, and some of those have been uh, revived um, in recent years. I think of uh, a film called um, Outback, which uh, has been uh, has been reissued uh, more recently under a different title. And it, it's about a guy who gets stuck in a weird remote town. Actually, it's Painted Hill, the same town that the Mad Max films were made in. Mm. Um and, uh, you know, he get, falls in with these locals and it just becomes this ongoing nightmare where he can't escape this town and they just keep getting drunker and crazier. And, oh, and, yeah. I've, this is one I've seen, actually. Yeah. yeah and now yeah. I, all I can remember is the, the North American release title, which is, is Outback, but it's got a different title. Donald Pleasance has a great role in it. Mm-hmm. And I've completely forgotten yeah, the original I've, title. Yeah, I've, I've totally slipped my mind, too. <laughs> it's like Journey into Fear. But we'll, we'll, like, we'll, we'll figure we'll, it we'll out. We'll look it up. But, yeah. yeah. Um, 
And then uh, a long weekend, a couple goes away uh, for a camping holiday, and then nature, basically, Herzog would love this, nature just basically rebels against them because they're such jerks, and all the animals basically try to take them out uh, <laughs> over the course of, of this weekend. It's one of those great when animals attack kind of films. But, but there's this deeper layer of this couple's uh, marriage falling apart while uh, all these animals are trying to kill them. And... Um, and so, so Mad Max kind of came out of that because it's basically there's long stretches of whole, of of Australian highway that are completely deserted where you can stage all these crazy car stunts and chases and and they're, you know they're straight as a nail just all the way down down the line and he can film all these great sequences. So there's all these films that that do this and there's another one called um, Dead End Driving is another kind of not too distant future kind of film where all these teenagers are rounded up and put in this drive-in with their, their hot vehicles. And they spend the whole film trying to escape well, from all well, this totalitarian regime, keeps them penned up inside. Um, Turkey shoot is kind of like another variation on the, uh, the world's most dangerous game. Where that that may be hunt. the best title of a movie yeah. ever. Oh, and it's fun. It, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of fun where these people are, are basically being hunted by, by the elites and, and they have to try to escape, uh, from, from being, uh, you know, turkeys, yeah, as, yeah. as it were. And, and so uh-huh. it's, it's got this fun kind of survivalist kind of theme. And, and so Mad Max came out of that, you know, but but uh, George Miller, who uh, I guess originally was a doctor. Um, yeah, I've heard that. But, uh, you know, had these uh, was disillusioned with the medical world, I suppose, and and had this idea of a, of a, of a cop who uh, gets pushed to the edge and by a, a bike gang that seems to be above the law or, you know, so reprehensible. Um Wake and Fright, thank you. That is, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> that is the film that I, I, I first saw as Outback. There you go, um, yeah. So look for that. It's been reissued by the Alamo Drafthouse people. Yeah. So it's uh, it's around either for rent or oh, Wasn't the director Canadian? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was uh, the same, I think it was the same director, Ted Kotcheff. Yeah. Who directed uh, The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz. <laughs> and then he went to Australia and made this crazy uh, crazy film about uh, an Outback town where where just all hell breaks loose. Yeah, and they they use actual footage of people on a on a kangaroo hunt, which yeah, I think is maybe the shock most shocking it's part. Kind of nightmarish, actually. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know, you, you know, most people don't even know they hunt kangaroos, but they yeah, do. And they it's, really do. It's, it's not pretty. Um, um, yeah. So, uh, well, we should talk a little bit about yeah, Mad let's Max. Talk about Max. Like, for people who who haven't seen it, uh, it it imagines a world in quotes a few years from now, where uh, a very gauche set of Hell's Angels. Uh, tool around on motorcycles. They're sort of at war with a small group of disheveled cops who are hamstrung by bureaucracy, but basically are their own gang. It's like gang versus gang in this this uh, in this land, and they're protecting, I guess, a small town populace. But you never really see many of the local folks there. You, if you don't run into them on the highway, you don't see a lot of them. Uh, and and Max Rockatansky is uh, played by a babyface Mel Gibson, who's like 22 at the time. He uh, and he's been a cop for a while, and and he doesn't, you know, he really doesn't want to do it anymore. When he sees one of his buddies gets get burned up by these uh, these these guys, uh, these gangs, he's just like, forget it, I need a break. So he and his wife and child they get out, get away from it all, and they go out to the bush somewhere. But the uh, the gangs they find him out there, and and bad stuff happens. So so it becomes the last in the last about. 20 minutes, half hour becomes a, you know, nonstop revenge thriller in a way that, uh, that I, it's my favorite part of the film. I, I find the first couple of acts just kind of rambling. There's a lot of fun in there. There's some great stunts, but it just, it takes its time getting where it's going. But once it's there, man, this is, this is a lot of fun. Yeah. It opens with a great chase with the, uh, the Knight Rider, you know, yeah. with this, <laughs> yeah. this crazy, uh, 
just ranting lunatic uh, and his girlfriend in a stolen cop car. Uh, it opens with this great chase, and then it kind of bogs down a little bit. I, I, I've seen some people describe it as being quite dated, and it, it is a product of the late 70s. Uh, there's no getting around that. But I, I still like the charm of it. It's, it's, it's a low-budget movie that makes the most of, of its limitations, and, and the, the driving, the stunts, and everything are fa- fabulous. Um, I have to say, I, I saw... The first two Mad Max movies, Mad Max and the Road Warrior, or as they call it in Australia, Mad Max 2, um, at a double feature at Wormwoods, uh, Dog and Monkey Cinema, when it was on the top floor of the Kyber building. So it, was, it wasn't it was a big, big screen, but it was a, a bigger screen uh-huh. than anybody had in their homes in those days. Um, so uh, so that was my. I, these are films that I read about and always kind of chomped at the bit to be able to see, and finally... Uh, Finally, I could see them in, in a double feature back-to-back. And it was, uh-huh. uh, it's still one of my favorite movie-going experiences to see that with a packed crowd, uh, just completely revved up to see these two films. And, uh, you know, that, that deliver in, in action in a way that films at that time really didn't. I mean, you know, maybe they seem uh, a little dated now compared to what's come since. But, I mean, at the time, these films were uh, kind of the ne plus ultra of crazed, you know, high-octane high thrills on the, totally. on the blacktop. So, yeah. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm glad that I saw both these films under like really prime circumstances. I think sometimes when you watch them on TV, it diminishes things a little bit. Um, you know, I, I don't know, but I think people did laugh at the saxophone scene <laughs> yeah. then yeah. as well as now. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just... funny because watching the third one, there's a sax scene in there too. There's a guy playing yeah. a sax, mournful sax. And I was I was surprised <laughs> they didn't bring a sax back in, in Fury Road, but but I guess maybe they just decided the the crazed fire fire spewing guitar was the way to yeah, go. Yeah, that's the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, interestingly, a little trivia about the first Mad Max movie. When the film was released in the United States by Warner, I guess, they redubbed the film because they were concerned that the accents would be too thick for, for audiences. I don't know if it made any difference to its fortunes at the box office, but uh, but it's funny because um, some DVD releases, you can actually play either version. Yeah, it's, it, it's weird. Like, to my ears, the, the Australian version sounds fine, but of course that's the version I've been watching all this time. Sure. And uh, yeah, they only sort of brought back the American dub on, on sort of more recent editions. Um, I think they were kind of embarrassed <laughs> to admit they actually did it at the time. But yeah, it was American International. It was kind of like the the last gasp of this kind of indie exploitation studio right. um, that licensed the film from the, from the Australian studios. Um, you know, these this is these are the guys that gave Roger Corman their their, their oh, start, okay. and you know. Um, Produced all the beach movies with Frankie and Annette, and so, made, so Warner's didn't films. Warner didn't get involved until the second movie. Then, yeah, well, eventually the company that bought uh, it was Orion Pictures bought the American International catalog, and then uh-huh. Orion got bought by some other company, and that got bought by uh, Warner. So, so it's just because it, it became part of the, under the Warner umbrella after right. years of of, al- of allocations and and uh, and uh, you know mergers and all that kind of thing. So. Um, yeah, it's a Warner title now, but it wasn't originally. Mm. It's just kind of weird that, you know, it's sort of the last gasp of one of the independent exploitation students. Right. Uh, and so it, so it has that kind of foot in the the old uh, kind of ride with the devil, dirty dirty Mary, crazy Larry. <laughs> yeah, of, right, sure. Kind of films, which kind of inspired it in, in a way. Some of those early 70s eat my dog. I mean, we're getting back into our crazed automobile uh, episode, but a lot of those titles helped inform uh, what happens in Mad Max. Sure, sure. And um, 
And Mel Gibson, uh, in between the first Mad Max and Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, uh, he, he, he did some, some good work becoming an international star. He, mm-hmm. he did some, two films with another great Australian filmmaker, Peter Weir. He did Gallipoli in the Year of Living Dangerously before he strapped on the leathers again to do another Max film. Now, now uh, um, interestingly, uh, you know, the, I guess the, the produce, producers decided that Mad Max 2, the reason they retitled it for the American release was because they figured not enough people had seen the first, first one. Mad yeah, Max. it was yeah. pretty much drive-in fodder. It, it wasn't like a prestige release by any means. And mm-hmm. of course, this new one was a Warner Brothers picture. And, uh, you know, Mel was more of a star at this point. Uh, yeah. You know, I think at the time of Mad Max, uh, I remember seeing one of his pre-Mad Max films. I think it was called Tim where he plays the mentally challenged um, handyman who yeah, has, has right. an affair with Piper Laurie of Twin Peaks and uh, the Hustler fame. So kind of a touching story, but not the, and he's very good in it, but it's not the sort of thing you expect to see to see him in mm-hmm. um, after the films that would, would soon follow, you know, making him a man of action. But it's a sweet little film if you get a chance to see it. But it, it's a huge leap to Mad Max and, of course, the American films that come along after. Yeah. Yeah, now The Road Warrior is probably one of my favorite films, and I mentioned it in a previous podcast. We talked about car movies. I mean, it's the, as you mentioned, it's just like the craziest car movie uh, that one can imagine, and and maybe there's an argument to be said that The Fury Road tops it, but, but I've gone back and watched it uh, many times over the years, and Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, is just no end of fun. It, it basically, it, it, it envisions a world about 10 years after the events of the first film. And uh, Max is, looks about 10 years older, even though it was made only a couple of years after the, the previous film. And he is, it, the world's gone to hell and, and basically all civilization is burned out. He winds up being kind of a, a well, the titular war, road warrior, but he's kind of a, a Western hero, you know, you, he's a, or the lone samurai. You don't really know what his motivations for doing things are. He's definitely interested in, in his own survival, and he's willing to do pretty much anything to ensure that. But uh, he gets an opportunity to help a group of people uh, in, their, in their oil refinery and getting them away from some, some very bad badasses of, of the wastelands. And, uh, you know, the, when he changes his mind and he decides to help them, we don't entirely understand why he does it. But he does, <laughs> he does do it. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a great story. Uh, interestingly, he, uh, uh, I mean, the amazing characters and, and incredible, again, incredible uh, wardrobe and production design. The, the influence of this film on, on what I think the culture and Western culture thinks of as the end times is is hard to measure. I mean, people talk about the influence of Blade Runner as a science fiction film. I think this is as influential as that is in terms of the way people dressed and people thought about it. Uh, the 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 crazy guy Vernon Wells, who played the number one Mohican biker warrior Wes, he wound up showing up again in John Hughes' Weird Science a few years later, <laughs> basically playing the same character, which was hilarious. Um, you know, and then there's there's that uh, there's that cr- unbelievable 13 minute long truck and modified car chase at the end of the movie with 80 vehicles that I still true. think uh, leaves people in slack jawed amazement. It's nothing like anyone has ever seen at the scene before. Yeah, that that sequence leaves you kind of exhausted. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yes. so does Fury Road. I mean, and Fury Road has a lot of similarities because it's it, this long extended chase centered on a, a you know a tanker truck. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Mad Max, the original, you know, a lot of, we'd seen a lot of those kind of stunts before. It was just that it was 
not maybe as concentrated uh-huh. <laughs> in, in one form. You know, there's stuff like in Freebie and the Bean that kind of shows up in, in Mad Max. That's and Duel and yeah. I guess, yeah. But but not uh, not so single-mindedly <laughs> in terms of, of, of what Mad Max does. But, but here, there really isn't a big frame of reference for what we're seeing. Uh there, you know, I mean, with, there's a film that we'll, we'll probably talk about later called A Boy and His Dog that has kind of that similar kind of post-apocalyptic, uh, you know, lone wanderer, although he's more of a shaggy dog hippie kind of character rather than this kind of grim, uh, the, the samurai uh, archetype that you mm-hmm. mentioned, which is actually really apt. You know, I, I'm guessing being in Australia that they tend to get a lot of Asian movies playing there, you know, just being slightly below those countries. So those films were probably fairly prevalent over the years. I'm sure George Miller was a fan. I mean, I'm sure. Um, you know, if you see any of those, you know, Jimbo or Zatoichi, who's like the, the blind swordsman, you know, wandering from town to town, doing good and then moving along. And Mad Max has clearly, uh, clearly got some of that uh, formula in him. But, uh, but yeah, the whole look of the film and, and the concept of these gangs Roaming the Wasteland. I mean, that was all pretty fresh when this film came out. And and, and uh, there were so many imitators, so many low-budget ripoffs <laughs> yes. of the Road Warrior to follow uh, Bronx Warriors and Warriors of the Wasteland and, you know, any, yeah. any number of those kind of movies. And they all have their charms, but uh, but none of them have the, the smarts or or the drive of, of, of this particular film. Yeah, film. I mean, the way, the way he shot those car chases and put the camera low on the fenders and just there was stuff being done that I don't know that I'd seen before and I've seen often since uh, but you mentioned Yojimbo and uh, and it's funny because when I rewatched Mad Max 3 Beyond Thunderdome from 1985 uh, which was turns out turned out to be Mel Gibson's last kick at the franchise before he moved on to do Lethal Weapon movies and all the other movies he did in his in his career uh, that Yojimbo definitely an influence directly on that mm. film especially the first part of it uh, there, or you know if you want to go further back the Red Harvest uh, book uh, by Dashiell Hammett but the guy who shows up and then plays two warring uh, you know, people, gangs, uh, gangsters off each other. Uh, that's pretty much what happens in the third film. He uh, he's he's gotten sort of. Uh, he's eking out a living in the wastelands and he gets all his personal belongings stolen so Max winds up going to a place called Bartertown where he he meets Auntie Entity played by Tina Turner and uh, and that's great and there's some awesome looking stuff going on in that first part of the film he winds up getting into this gladi- gladiatorial match uh, with Master Blaster in the Thunderdome the Thunderdome is this this sort of a cage where people fight it out uh, two, two men enter one man leaves uh, it's great great stuff and then there's the sort of second part the middle part where he he inter- encounters these kids living in kind of an oasis in the desert and he helps them out and they think that he is the reincarnation or the return of of a of a character that they believe will lead them out of this place and lead them to safety and he says i'm not that person and and he uh and any and, he, and I, you know and there's some cool stuff in there but i it, it felt like the ewoks to me like that whole section is just a little too cute yeah the the film uh, i rewatched it recently and you know, I didn't have fond memories of it from the first time around. I always felt it was a disappointment. I think I liked it better this time around, knowing what I was in for. So I kind of enjoyed the stuff I enjoyed before, and still didn't like the stuff I didn't like before. But um, it's it's kind of a hodgepodge. It's 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 like a it's you know it's like that Johnny Cash one piece at a car uh, one piece at a time car. Like the the parts that work are really great, but but uh, other parts just kind of drag the film down. Yeah. It doesn't have that kind of pacing and. You know, I, I think George Miller like was trying to make the family friendly 
Road Warrior film, and and that was probably a mistake. I figure it was too, and the fact that it's rated PG thirteen, yes. I think, is a sign of that. And it has that feeling, that mid eighties kind of tentpole quality to it, which I don't know that serves the kind of adrenalized intensity of the of the franchise. But that said, I still really enjoy. I, I again, the production design wins me over. I just can't. I, my eyes, I seeing things I've never seen before in in Barter Town, and uh, the pigs running things underneath. Yeah. Uh, and I, I loved all of that. Uh, and and then the final the final act, the final twenty minutes is another crazy chase. This time with yeah, a with, truck on rails and the aircraft and the yeah. aircraft, which is funny. Bruce Spence, who played the gyro captain in the second film, plays a pilot in the third film, but he's not the same character. character. It's same so character. weird, and that's what we're t- when we're talking about it not needing to have a sense of continuity that's what this is the kind of thing if you look at it too closely it just doesn't make sense yeah it's kind of open he'd show up in fury road in some capacity but but no dice but yeah but yeah this film uh again it has its moments uh the other thing about beyond thunderdome you watch it and it feels like the 80s like it just feels like an 80s movie in yeah. so many so many different ways i mean the, the music doesn't help and uh <laughs> but you know like like in road warrior it sort of feels like the future there's a couple there's there's a one female uh kind of fighter warrior woman at the at the um the gas uh, compound who's got crimped hair i'm thinking it's the apocalypse who so has time to crimp their hair you know who's, <laughs> yeah. where, where's where's that hot oil comb when you need it uh, yeah after the after the armageddon and then another woman has this has the king this, the side ponytail from napoleon dynamite basically uh so it's you know the, there's a couple of instances where it it kind of pulls things back a little bit, mostly the crimping hair. Uh-huh. But uh, but for the most part, I think it, it, it works really well and looks kind of out of time. But, but yes. beyond Thunderdome, for, for some reason, Mel's got that kind of Richard Marks hair and, <laughs> you know, Mad Marks beyond, th- beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> yeah, um, extensions, clearly extensions. And uh, it's just, it's, that kind of, that kind of, Brings it down a notch for sure in my eyes yeah. compared to the other two. Yeah, um, I will say that it, if you're if you're in a, uh, you know you want to see you're a completist, it's it's very much worth seeing. The, the, like you say, the stuff that works well that that work really well. Um, interesting bit of trivia about the film I'll throw in here: Bruce Spence. Uh, one of those character actors, he played the the pilot and in both of these movies. He is one of the character actors whose films have grossed the billions. He uh, he was a, a voice in Finding Nemo. He was in Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. He was in Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, yeah. uh, he was in Lord of the Rings, and he was in Matrix Revolutions. <laughs> so the guy has had a foot in all these different playing small parts. You know, all these different franchises. He's like he's like the Australian Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, it probably has to do with the fact that I think one of the world's largest green screen sound stages is in Australia. Well, there so you go. They, they tend to hire Australian actors for the, the bit parts just because mm-hmm. it saves them a few bucks. Because uh, it's funny considering that he was a star of some early 70s like Australian sex comedies. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, like Stork as a famous one based on a play where he's kind of like a kind of a cynical ne'er-do-well who has these kind of adventures with women and with his mates and stuff and it's it's an interesting film it's 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 it can be kind of painful to sit through at times but he's very engaging in that it's kind oh. of interesting to consider that he was the star of a com- sex comedy <laughs> that is know, before going on to play the pilot in the mad max films um you know so, and there's a lot of those kind of players steve bisley who uh, plays goose um the motorcycle driving friend in the first film he's he's in quite a bit of uh 
uh, Australian films that only Australians would know and TV series and that kind of thing. So he's a familiar face, especially when I've watched so much of that stuff in recent years. And, and so it's kind of fun to go back and see him so young in, in, in a film like that. But, um, you know, there's definitely a connection to that industry that uh, that really charms me. So it's interesting to watch Fury Road, which has, again, it was, you know, shot in, in Africa and doesn't really have a lot of that kind of Australian day player charm it's true it. but there are a few australian actors oh, and, sure. and accents and you hear amongst the the american and brits they there's definitely an international kind of uh a sound which i liked well that helps it's not necessarily supposed to be set in australia so no it's, just it's true some anonymous futuristic wasteland so could be anywhere it's, it's nice that it's another step removed from the settings of the, of the first three films uh, one thing i also learned is production design on on beyond thunderdome was by graham grace walker who went on to do production design on crocodile dundee pitch black and most recently the Walking Dead. Ah. So there's more of that that production design uh, uh, influence, certainly by the creative people who worked on those films, carrying on and showing, you know, showing and with The Walking Dead anyway, showing a potential terrible future. <laughs> exactly. The ripples keep spreading. <laughs> so post-apocalyptic movies. I mean, I think we've established probably already in our conversation, Stephen, that people are obsessed with end times. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't, it's no surprise that people have in, in, imagined this, but it seems to me that Mad Max, the franchise sort of occupies sort of a central uh, player in, in this genre. It kind of invented in some ways sort of reimagined the genre. Previous to Mad Max, there was Boy and His Dog, as you mentioned uh, from the Harlan Ellison story. Yeah. Uh, there's a film I, I liked a lot called Damnation Alley, uh, Charlton Heston, of course, were, was in a number of end-of-the-world movies from, from uh, Planet of the Apes to Omega the Omega Man. Man. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, Soil and Green is kind of pointing in that direction yeah. to a certain degree. Yeah, um, and then and then the Max came along, and then after Max, there, there was all the ones that it influenced, and some of them are are great you know certainly kevin costner is responsible for some of the lesser entries i don't i don't, I don't want to get into Waterworld or the postman but you know they they certainly owe a debt to max um i think the, the postman is not a good film but i think Waterworld has its charms yes um, i mean yeah. uh, you know anything with dennis hopper is the leader of the fish people or whatever. <laughs> you know, that's got to be worth a watch yeah so I, I i would say uh i would say go back and have another look at Waterworld. i'm, I'm not sure why it got the level of disdain that it did, uh, maybe just because it was people were looking to take Kevin Costner down a peg or two after Dances with Wolves. I was think so, so. Well and, and I think that it, the buzz of the film, because it was so expensive, every time a movie goes crazily over budget, the Hollywood hubris gets discussed. Yeah, there were a lot of stories from the set on that yeah. film. You know, a yeah. lot of Entertainment Weekly updates. About they, they, they said the things same things. Wrong. They said the same things about Titanic, and then, but it wound up being a huge success, so people forgot. Uh, and they also said the same things about Ishtar, which didn't wind up being a huge success, and it was crazily over budget. So, so you know, those sorts of things. Those projects happen. People think, oh, it's going to be terrible. And uh, Waterworld, I think, you know, actually, if you look at the history of its of its uh, box office, did okay. I don't think it was quite the bomb. Yeah, it did eventually was, make money. Yeah. And, and it's, um, you know, story-wise, it's reasonably solid. It's just mm-hmm. the idea of 
Kevin Costner as a gill man, I guess, was just yeah. a, a leap that people weren't ready to take at that point yeah. in, his, in his career. Uh, but, you know, for those who happen to be listening in our neck of the woods, <laughs> there uh, there is a uh, Atlantic Canadian uh, post-apocalyptic movie called DEFCON 4 that you showed to me. This was made in <laughs> 1985, directed by Paul Donovan, who is a name many people around here will recognize. And, uh, yeah, and it's uh, it's about two men and a woman who circle the globe until on a satellite uh, or a, a space station until World War III, and they somehow find a way to get down to Earth, and they discover a society that's risen up even just in a few months. It's risen up from the <laughs> the, the ashes of of the former one, um, you know. But one of the thermonuclear warheads that was on the satellite has has been timed to blow, and it's. Uh, and it's found its way down to the earth as well. So that's basically the story that you're looking at if you decide to check out DEFCON 4. Yeah, it's amazing how fast it takes society to completely uh, devolve into chaos in this film. But it's it's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of familiar faces. Uh, Maury Chaikin, you know, who's sorely missed, uh, plays kind of a, a crazed survivalist with a soft side. Uh, you know, we've got uh, uh, actress and, uh, and member of the Legislative Assembly, uh, Lenora Zan, plays uh one of the one of the survivors who uh, has to rise to the occasion and earn her freedom and um and uh lots of familiar i actually saw a bunch of my friends playing actors <laughs> yeah in this movie which which, which was a real treat as well um and you know i, I think uh, i think paul donovan i i kind of wish he was still making films but uh you know obviously uh his company with his brother michael that uh, was salter street films then now it's dhx uh, you know, who make uh, this hour's 22 minutes and they uh-huh. make a lot of kids shows. But uh, I guess they decided that there's no money in feature films and they've kind of gotten out of that yeah. whole whole side of things. But uh, they did make a bunch of fun, fun genre pictures uh, early in their years. And, and this is this is certainly one that that uh, was their first one to get major distribution in any sort of appreciable form. It got picked up by Roger Corman's New World Pictures. Um, prior to that, they made a film called Siege. Uh, set in Halifax during a police strike about a bunch of vigilantes who uh, who accidentally kill a man and then they basically try to kill all the witnesses and they have to kind of stand their ground and fight back against these uh, these rogue vigilantes who are trying to take them out and uh-huh. at least make it till the dawn and the police strike will be over and <laughs> right you know um, you know get their uh, get the the law back on their side so th- and that's a fun film kind of has a John Ford Ford Apache kind of feel about it. Um, but but this one actually got worldwide distribution and it is available on DVD. It's a double feature with uh, Hell Comes to Frogtown, another post-apocalyptic uh, action comedy with Rowdy Roddy Piper. There you go. Uh, you know, so that's that's definitely two great films for the price of one. Uh, and, and it's 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 really resourceful. I mean, you can tell it's pretty low budget, but uh, you know, the, the, there's some fun vehicles. Uh, the kind of the town where everyone lives is kind of a creative bit of set design, and there's a nice streak of black humor that runs through it. Uh, that that uh, is is typical of a of a Paul Donovan uh, script that he had a really kind of dark sense of humor and it, it kind of shows through in this in a big way and, and it comes through in some of his other later films but but this this one uh, is probably the one that got him the most attention. I I did like how the wasteland was so Eastern Shore. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know? Like beaches and lots of trees and rocks, uh, and I I just felt that was a refreshing change of pace for the post-apocalyptic vision. I also like that the the main villain of the of the piece, pay, played by Kevin King, uh, his character's name is Gideon Hayes, and he's kind of preppy. He's <laughs> just a preppy in the post-apocalypse. <laughs> I know that was a brilliant bit of casting. It's just it's almost like Revenge of the Nerds post-apocalyptic style. And our heroes, the astronaut uh, who 
who's like the main hero of the film, is kind of a jerk. We don't even really like him. And that's kind of a typical uh, Donovan touch, too, that, that he doesn't, it's not the hard and fast uh, kind of uh, character roles that you'd expect. And uh, so, you know, <laughs> you're kind of, you're supposed to be rooting for this guy, but you also don't really care. <laughs> He's, but it allows him to be a bit nastier, maybe, than he would be in a, in a more typical kind of action film. So let's get that going for it, too. Yeah. Now, uh, of of the other films that very much followed close in the wake of the Mad Max, the original Mad Max uh, franchise, uh, Blood of Heroes from 1989 is probably is my probably my favorite. It's also known as Salute of the Jugger, and it was written and directed by David Webb Peoples, who wrote uh, one of the writers on Blade Runner and Unforgiven and Twelve Monkeys. So this guy's got a great, uh, you know, uh, uh, resume. And uh, Blood of Heroes stars Rutger Hauer, Joan Chen, Delroy Lindo, and Vincent D'Onofrio. And it's basically an amalgam of the post-apocalyptic movie with a sports movie. The Juggers are a team of roaming athletes who play a game not unlike football in some ways. Basically, uh, uh, one person has to carry a, a dog skull oh. across <laughs> across the, the opponent's sort of goal line. And uh, and their various characters have various positions. The, there's the person who is supposed to carry the skull and there are others that are supposed to defend that person and try to get them there, and it's and they you know it's sort of an offense defense kind of deal. Yeah, it's only slightly less confusing than Quidditch. <laughs> yes, basically. basically. <laughs> uh, but they, they, you know, and then they they travel around these different places, and uh, interestingly, uh, Hugh Keys Byrne, who we mentioned, uh, plays Immortan Joe in the new Mad Max film. He was Toe Cutter back in '79. He plays a character called Lord Vile here <laughs> in Blood of Heroes. So that's another connection to uh, the Mac the Mac franchise this is a really fun movie these a lot of these actors i mean vince nofrio is is you know is is got he's barely got uh um whiskers on his face he's so young uh rutger hauer is terrific as the as as the villain as the hero of the the piece kind of the leader of this gang and he uh he winds up having some serious damage done to an eye but it doesn't stop him he's too tough <laughs> he's too tough and i should mention that large chunks of this film are also shot at uh, the film was shot in australia and uh they use a location called Cooper Pedy, which shows up in, uh, it definitely shows up in Beyond Thunderdome. That's the, the, the place where the pilot lives and has yeah, his playing. Sure. Um, which is uh, kind of a famous spot in Australia because it's, uh, it's known for uh, mineral uh, gem uh, mining. So the, the opals, I think, and other gems are found there in this particular spot in the desert. And because it's so hot, um, people don't build houses. They dig into the underground and they actually live in these underground caves. It's, it's kind of kind of post-apocalyptic slash Flintstones type lifestyle. <laughs> but uh, but it actually makes more sense to actually build your house in the ground rather than, because then you don't have to air, use air conditioning. You just sure. use the national, natural cool of the earth. But it makes it a very eerie and weird looking place and uh, makes it perfect for, for movies like this. And uh, I, I didn't get a chance to go there. I was kind of hoping maybe uh, I'd get to visit when I was in Australia, but it was just a little too far out of our way. But I'm hoping at some point... Uh, I'll be able to make the trek there Very and, good. Uh, and see some of these locations, but but it does have that you know it gives it a nice otherworldly feel and uh, and they they use the locations well in this film. I get the feeling that um, that the director was probably promised a much larger budget for his script than what what eventually uh, surfaced to make the film, but uh, but you know just throw an extra 
you know, love layer of mud on the extras. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, uh, you know, costumes and uh, and and a, and a great, a good imagination with the positioning of the camera work uh, makes for a lot of fun. And and uh, I've seen the film two or three times, and and I'm really impressed with how well they did it. I mean, if you ever wondered what Mad Max and Bull Durham would be if they had a baby, <laughs> this is it. This is it. This is the cross pollination. Yeah, it's nice to know that organized sports will survive. Following the apocalypse. <laughs> That's our show. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can contact us on Twitter at Lens Me Your Ears, all one word, or search for Lens Me Your Ears on Facebook. We're on Stitcher, and you can rate and review us on iTunes. And if you do, we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Our email is Lens Me Your Ears Podcast at gmail.com. I'm Karsten Knox, and my Twitter is at Karsten Knox. And I'm Stephen Cook, and my Twitter is at ch underscore scooke. Thanks very much for listening to Lends Me Your Ears and our journey back to Max. And may all your roads be long and straight and go off into the horizon. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. <laughs>